Well, happy Resurrection Sunday. I don't care for the term Easter. I don't know what it means. Um, nobody knows actually what it means. There's some etymology on that, but uh, it's a little dodgy. It's a little sketchy, so I don't actually use the term. Um, it doesn't really capture what we're celebrating, right? The term Easter. Don't know really what it means. Um, again, it's a little sketchy. Um, so Resurrection Sunday captures it perfectly, right? We're here to celebrate the fact that God the Son, who was crucified, has come out of the tomb. I don't like to preach on Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday, I said it, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, I know you wouldn't expect a preacher to say that, but it's just like too big. You know, it's too big, it's too glorious, it's too awesome, it's too wonderful. You know, any self-aware preacher knows he can't, he can't get there. You know, you know that every Sunday you stand up here, you can't get there. But particularly on Resurrection Sunday. And isn't it nice, the, the uh, sermon this morning dovetails very nicely into our current series on what a healthy church should be. Obviously, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundational tenet of the ecclesia. Now, some of you who are visiting, you may not know what ecclesia means. Brad has taught us that it means the called out ones. The technical, I looked it up yesterday, the technical definition, a people called out of the world and to God. I hope that's why you're here. I hope you're not just coming to church because it's a holiday and it's a habit. I think that's an insult to God. I'll just be honest with you. You know, if you, if you attend church twice a year, I think that's an insult to God. Right? We are the ecclesia. We are called out of the world and unto God. To echo uh, Joe's prayer, Paul said it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 and following. If Christ has not been raised, what? Then I'm preaching in vain. I'm preaching in vain. Your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. And we are, all above, we are of all men most to be pitied, but Christ has been raised. Amen? And those of you who are born again know it. You don't have any doubt. He's alive in your heart and your soul. Everything changed when he, when he showed up in your life. You know, you just see this on the page of Scripture all the time. God just invades people's lives, right? He just shows up, and you catch a glimpse of him, and everything changes. Everything changes. So at Grace, we're orthodox. We believe our Bibles. We know the tomb is empty. But the subsequent question has to be, particularly for each one of us individually, for every professing Christian, what are you doing with the resurrection of Christ? You know, if it's just dogma for you, you know, it's just background. It's just always there. But I, I don't think about it. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change the way I surf the Internet. It doesn't change the way I treat my wife. It doesn't change the way I do my job. It doesn't really change much of anything. It's background. It's historical fact. I may tip my hat to it, but God's not interested in you and I tipping our hats to Him. What are you doing 
with it. If we've really believed that Jesus is risen, that he is reigning, that he is returning, as I've already said, everything that's significant in your life will change. So I'm just going to ask you, has that happened to you? Are you being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit because you've come into a real and dynamic relationship with the Son of God. Every Sunday, you come in here, everything's at stake. Right? Life and death, heaven and hell. That's, what, that's always the issue on us every Sunday morning. Life and death, heaven and hell. Now, I know that's just Bible talk for some of you. But God says it's reality. God says that it's reality. So if it's not that for you, if it's not life and death and heaven and hell, you've not understood who he is and you've not understood what he's done. If it's not life and death and heaven and hell for you, you've not understood who you are and the depth of your guilt before, as we say, a holy God. If you don't know what holy means, I just challenge you to go home and, and Google it and study it out. Okay? The holiness of God. <laughs> I say this all the time. Every man that saw him hit their face as fast as they could. And there's this, there's this uh, ambiance in the modern church. Well, he's just my friend. Yeah, he used that word. He's our friend, but he's a holy God. He's a consuming fire. And when was the last time you had a prayer time when you realized that he was a consuming fire and you were on your face? When was the last time that happened? Beloved, I'm saying life is short. Life is short. And you're going to be standing before your creator real soon. Real soon. Are you ready? He's not going to be impressed that you attended church on Resurrection Sunday, April 9th. 2023. He's not impressed with that, that you merely attended. Now, if you've come <laughs> and you love him, and as Jenna was saying, you can't help but worship this great God, right? I can't help it. I've got to worship this God, particularly this God who sacrificed himself for me. I have got to worship this God. I've got to be part of his people. I've got to sit under the word. I've got to bring him an offering. I've got to. You can't stop me, right? You can't stop me. You know, it's a, human life is, a, is about as serious a proposition as one can imagine. The Bible tells us that God made us to uh, live in harmony with him, but we rebelled against him. Now we're his enemies. Now he's dreadfully provoked, as Jonathan Edwards says. We're his enemies. Can it get any worse? We're the enemies of God, the omnipotent one. Can it get any worse? Psalm 511 says, God hates all who do iniquity. I know you've never heard that text. <laughs> uh, if you're visiting, you've probably never heard that text. God loves everybody. God hates all who do iniquity. It's the Bible. You know, the modern church, which is mostly apostate, 
has painted God as this little caricature cartoon figure that you don't have to worry about because He loves you so much. Right? I'm saying if you're not in Christ, you have every reason to worry. You have every reason to worry. He is the angry lamb, as they tell us in Revelation. So God has promised wrath, vengeance, recompense, and terror, which ultimately, biblically, we understand means eternal conscious punishment for every man, woman, boy, and girl who openly reject Him. And here's something that's more maybe germane to us, to everyone who is merely playing religion with Him. Now, if you read your Bible, you realize God has always hated those who simply play religion. God loathes this. He hates this. So I hope none of us in this room are guilty of offending Him in this way. We know in the modern church that there are many folks who are simply Christian in name only. It's a cultural thing. It's a religious thing. Yeah, I go to church sometimes if it's convenient. Again, can you insult God to any greater degree? I, I just don't know if you can insult God to any greater degree, right? I just go if it's convenient for me, if it fits my schedule. If it's not fitting my schedule, if I've got something better to do, it's an insult. It's an insult to the one who made you. And to the one who will judge you if you are outside the sun. I've been reading, rereading a great book by one of my favorite theologians. It's called God is the Gospel by John Piper. And he poses this question for professing Christians. He said, can mere gratitude to God for the cross be idolatrous? Now, could you be here this morning and you're only here because of some gratitude or appreciation? We sang it, and I'm so glad whoever picked out the song. You know, we're here to worship. God's not overly interested in your appreciation or your gratitude. God is to be worshipped. He's to be worshipped. And if you don't understand it, you've not understood the Bible. God is to be worshipped. Right now, myriads of myriads of angels are worshiping the great Yahweh. And you come if it's convenient? I'm sorry, beloved. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it with Yahweh. That's not what he's interested in. You know... Unsaved people, unregenerate people love to hear the kind of talk that, 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 that the cross is really about me. He loves me so much. It's about me. It's really ultimately about me. Can I tell you, uh, as a preacher of the gospel for 40 years now, it's not ultimately about you, that it's primarily about the glory of God. Amen. Yeah, we're caught up in it, right, as we repent and believe. We're caught up in it, but it's not about us. It's about the glory of God and the grace that He has shown a people. That's what it's about. That's what it's about every Sunday. And God willing, every day in between, 
You know, there's that terrible line in that song, <laughs> above all, um, I think it's Michael W. Smith. Jesus took the fall and thought of me above all. Wrong. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. You know, you're never above the Father and the Spirit. You're never above the triune uh, relationship. You're never, you never are. Now, we're, we, are, we are caught up, right, as co-heirs. We're never above the Trinity. So a lot of people like to hear about the cross because in, in, a, in a backhanded way, it's like, well, God's making much of me. He's making much of me in the cross. And so I kind of like that about him. So I'll worship him some if it's convenient. If it fits my schedule. But I kind of like that. I kind of like that he makes much of me in the cross. Well, that's inept preaching or that's ignorant preaching. If you think it's all about you, <laughs> I don't think you know anything about the Bible. You know, if our thinking is like that, then we're kind of just caught up in our own self-worth and our own self-esteem. And we, we're happy with Yahweh because He likes us. And He's done a good thing. And He's made much of me. In the cross, I pray that no one in this room would be guilty of such thinking. It's always about worship. But if you came here this morning because it's a holiday, or you came here this morning thinking it was mostly about you, uh, if you came here this morning just because it's a habit, I'm going to invite you to confess your sin before God and repent. We're pretty sure, if we read our Bibles, vain worship Vain worship is a stench in the nostrils of God. Resurrection Sunday can't be ho-hum. It can't be business as usual. Right? It's why I read the text I read. They were trembling and astonishment gripped them. That's what Easter Sunday is. I said it. That's what Resurrection Sunday is. We're to be, we're to be, what did she say? We're to be trembling and gripped with astonishment. And I, I'm just going to venture a guess because I've come to church all my life, right? My parents drugged me to church my whole life, even when I didn't want to go. There was never any trembling or astonishment going on, right? Until God changed me, right? Until God did that miracle that only God can do. I looked at my, my East, sorry, my resurrection sermon um, for last uh, year, my last year in Italy. And you're going to hate the title. Uh, pretty much everybody hated the title. The title of my resurrection sermon last year was You Should Be in Hell. Um, you should be in hell. If you don't know that, you've not understood 
your problem before God. As a teacher and pastor for 40 years, I, I've, I've noticed that there's a couple of different reactions when you, when you mention the word hell. The true believer knows it, and he gets it, and he knows he deserves it. And, you know, he can't believe that the Son has bled out for his sins, and it provokes profound worship. The pseudo-Christian, the false Christian, he hates it when you bring it up, and he despises you for it. He finds the topic repugnant. How dare the preacher talk to me about hell? How dare the preacher talk to me about eternal conscious punishment? How dare him do that? Even though this is clearly what the Lord Jesus taught when he was here. You know, the average man on the street, he's just clueless. He's utterly oblivious. He thinks that, well, if there is such a place, only Hitler goes there. What do we know from the Bible? Everyone who sins one time and is not reconciled to the Father through the Son will go there. One time. That's how holy God is. That's how holy He is. So what's at stake in a deep understanding of the doctrine of hell? Everything. Nothing less than a right comprehension of God, your sin, His cross, and your worship. When you get a deep sense of what the Bible's saying about hell, man, you don't come if it's just convenient for you. You can't wait to come and praise the God who saved you out of it. I'm just going to read a couple of statements to you. If Jesus said that eternal hell is just and right and necessary for one single sin, and he did, here's what you need to know. How infinitely incomprehensible is the holiness of God? One sin. He have you read your Bible? He crashed the whole cosmos for one sin. He subjected the whole created order to corruption and judgment for one sin. And you think it's no big deal. I watched some pornography. God doesn't care. I'll gossip about my friend. It doesn't matter. I'll use his name as a swear word. It doesn't matter. If Jesus said eternal hell is just right and necessary, how infinitely blameworthy it must be to treat the glory of God with indifference. And this is the thing that drives me crazy in the modern church, by and large. It's just, it's just performance. It's just, you know, it's just, and I'm not talking about everybody, but I'm talking about for a large percentage of what is called Christ, Christianity today. Now, if you take the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox and much of Protestantism, it's just a religious habit. That's all it is. I, 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 I just, I can't stand the superficiality. I don't understand the superficiality. It's mind-boggling to me. Do, you, do we have no concept that he's a great God? You know, there's that text in Malachi chapter 1 where God says, Where's my respect? 
Where is it? Can you find any in your heart? He says, you would never treat a worldly king like that. You'd never just show up if it was convenient if you were summoned by a worldly king. That would never happen. Another statement, what infinite glory and purity God must possess, that everlasting suffering is the fitting punishment for ignoring dishonor and disobeying God. You know, it's just this thing, this thing about ignoring God. Again, it, 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 I, 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 I can't relate to it. I don't understand it. Lastly, moreover, if hell is true and real, what a stunning, shocking, amazing, astonishing, unbelievable thing Jesus has done to take his sin upon us and the wrath of God. I can't, you know, this is, it, it makes my head, my head, it makes my head almost explode. I can't communicate to you. I know the Holy Spirit can. What's at stake? On Resurrection Sunday, what's at stake? So in light of the consuming fire holiness of God, eternal conscious punishment is not the most outrageous doctrine. What is the most outrageous doctrine? What is the most scandalous doctrine of the Bible? That He'll save people like you and me. That he, 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 he worked it in such a way that, that he'll save people like me. You know who you are. People like you. And you, go, you know what the writer of Hebrews says. How shall we escape if we neglect? So I'm going to ask you, some of you visitors, I don't know if you go to church regularly somewhere else, that's great. But if you just showed up because it's Easter... I'm going to ask you, Hebrews 2, 3, how shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? How will you escape? You won't. You won't escape. You won't escape. So this, this morning, as we consider what the triune God has done in saving a people for the glory of his name, what does the Bible say? Who killed God? Who killed God? Who killed God? The Gentiles, yes. That's Acts 4.27. Uh, pardon me, that's at, yeah, 4, Acts 4.27. Who killed him? The Jews, yes. Same verse, Acts 4.27. But preeminently, this was God's idea, right? We understand this is God's idea. It was God's idea to murder his son. It was God's idea. And then, oh wait, I don't, I, I can't go to church unless it's convenient for me. What? And you claim to be a Christian, really? I'm sorry, I know I'm worked up. I haven't preached in like four weeks or five weeks, whatever it is. And, and, and I'm worked up. I tell Karen all the time, I can't believe the superficiality of the modern church. I can't believe it. It breaks my heart. I know it must break the Lord's heart. A people called by his own name. And it's just if I can make it. 
You know, it's just if it feels right. It's just if somebody, if they play the right music or they do that right or they do that right. It makes me want to kill myself when I hear that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm, I can't, I, we have no idea who we're dealing with here. We have no idea. You guys know the great text, Acts 2.23. Jesus Christ was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed him to a tree. What men of their own free will meant for evil, God meant for good. Men of their own free, depraved, rebellious will murdered the Son. God of his own free, gracious, loving will redeemed his people. Ultimately, God the Father delivered up his Son. Ultimately, God the Son laid his life down of his own initiative. The crucifixion of God was God-ordained, God-decreed, God-planned, God-initiated. <laughs> you worship if it's convenient. I'm just saying. It doesn't add up. Something is not computing Indeed, the scriptures are clear. This is the most terrifying and wonderful thing that's ever happened, right? It's the most terrifying and wonderful thing that's ever happened. The crucifixion of the Son for the glory of His grace. Of course, the Bible tells us, doesn't it? Hebrews 10, 31. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And I, can I say, uh, as a, been a, I've been a teacher and a pastor for 40 years, can, can, I, can I say that I bet there's more than one person in here who's at risk of falling into the hands of an angry God? You know, just because you're at church doesn't mean you're a Christian. It, you know, you may be a church member. That doesn't mean you're a Christian either. I'm talking about the born-again kind. I'm talking about, you know, I love Jesus so much my heart might explode kind. You know, that you, that you lay on your face and you prostrate yourself before him and you give him all that you have and all that you are kind. Yeah, that's, what, that's how Jesus talks about conversion in the Gospels. But we all have Isaiah's problem, right? God's holy, we're not. <laughs> God is holy, we're not. It's one of the reasons that, you know, that I hate man-centered therapeutic Gospels. You know, those utilitarian Gospels. How can I get God to serve me you know, that's prevalent in much of the modern church, the name and claim it crowd, the prosperity crowd. How can I get God working for me? You know, these false therapeutic gospels, they inevitably cascade into these kinds of questions. Why isn't God treating me better? I've heard this many times as a pastor. That's the wrong question. Here's the question if you're still walking around on the planet. Why am I not in hell yet? Because God is gracious and long-suffering and patient. Oh, and, and here's a way that you can be reconciled to Him. But I want to stay home and watch the game. There's a great cooking show's going to be on. It's like, mm, mama mia. So, why is always the wrong question? God doesn't really answer very many why questions. Some of you know this from experience. 
What is the most pressing question? What was the question that the Philippian jailer asked Paul? Remember? What must I do to be saved? And then who is the answer to the what question, right? The Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no, other, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's why we're gathered here on Resurrection Sunday, because of God's breathtaking answer to the what and the who questions. It just starts in that first gospel, you know, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You are wretched, just like me. And then we read in the Bible, this is scandalous in heaven. None of the angels were ever redeemed. None of them were ever redeemed. But God is redeeming, right? A wretched people from their just deserts. So it seemed good this morning to take just a few minutes to recount to recount how our God, who doesn't answer very many why questions, has emphatically answered the who and the what question. So let's pick up here. No need to follow me. You can't follow me. I'm just going to do a brief summary of, of some of the events surrounding the crucifixion. You remember the arrest, John 18. I always loved that text. I love to preach that text. It was, it was clearly no arrest. I think there were six, three to six hundred guys came after him, right? And when he said, when he said, I am, what happened? You remember what happened? He knocked them all down. And then they got up and tied him up with a rope. I mean, this is nonsense. We understand this is no true arrest. We understand this. Jesus is giving himself to the authorities. He is doing that. The religious, religious leaders got Jesus before Pilate. Pilate could find no guilt in him, but he sought to satisfy their bloodlust by having God scourged. Now, I think Brad talked a little bit about a scourging um, a couple of weeks or so ago. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, what was that, 04? I think it's an 04 movie. It's, it's very um, true to form. But the whip <clears throat> that Jesus received would have been uh, full of leather straps with metal balls, pieces of sharp bone, and, and metal shards woven into them. And he would have received 39 lashes, and his back would have been so shredded that parts of his ribs, spine, veins, muscles, and even organs would, were sometimes exposed. Men would die from the scourging. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bring the Old Testament in here. Isaiah 53, 5, 700 years earlier, God's prophet wrote, The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. But the game is on! I got a big social event on Sunday. You know, a good friend of mine, preacher, he says, um, when when ball becomes ba ba ball, when when you know, you know that now they play. In my day, they didn't used to do this, but now they play children's sports on Sunday and stuff. And and so when ball becomes ball, b a a l. How many excuses can you find not to come and worship Yahweh? How many can you find? I mean, there are a lot of them. 
They're endless, really. I've got a hangnail. I don't have my favorite pants. It's crazy. John 19, 2 and 3 tells us that after they scourged God, they put a crown of thorn, thorns on God's head and they, a purple robe on Him, and they mocked God and they hit God in the face. Now, you've got to realize this is I am. He spoke two trillion galaxies into existence. Matthew 27, 30 tells us they spat on God, they beat God on the head with a reed. John 19, 5 and 6, Pilate says, Behold the man! Luke 23, 21 tells us that the chief priests in the crowd, uh, crowd cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! John 19, 15 has Pilate asking, Shall I crucify your king? And the Jews utterly reject their Messiah. We have no king but Caesar! John 19, 17 tells us that Jesus carried his own cross until Simon was pressed into service. Jesus would have been surrounded by four soldiers. And I've, some of you have walked this, right? You've walked this through Jerusalem. He would have been surrounded by four soldiers, marched through the city. A fifth soldier would have been placed in front of him carrying a placard, which would have stated his crime. His placard read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. It's no crime. It's who he is. And because the crucifixion was so horrible, many men had to be dragged there. But not Emmanuel, not our Savior. He was on a mission. The glory of God and the joy of His people. Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb. He is led to slaughter. John 19 tells us that they took Jesus to Golgotha and they crucified Him. First, they would have stripped God naked. Then the soldiers laid God down on a cross beam. They took seven-inch spikes and drove them through his wrists. Then they hoisted God vertically and drove spikes through his feet. As the vertical beam dropped into the hole with a thud, both of his shoulders would have been dislocated. As most of you know, uh, death on a cross is by asphyxiation. Essentially, an agonizingly slow death. The chest is put into an inhaled position. At some point, the victim can no longer uh, push up to exhale. Of course, birds and dogs would have begun, begun to scavenge. Isaiah 53.10, but God was pleased to crush him. To render him a guilt offering. You guys know 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Father made the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I have other things to do. I can't be bothered with being part of the ecclesia and honoring my Savior. I can't be bothered. I got him in my hip pocket. I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I know it's all good for me. God means for us to look at the bloody, brutal, savage cross this morning. That's how heinous your sin is. 
That's how heinous my sin is. Those are your wages. And mine. Isaiah 53.6 But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. So seriously, you're going to ask me a, a lot of useless why questions. You're going to come to me with why questions. Now I'll do the best I can with the why question. But really the question is, what and who? That's the question. And if you get the answer to those two questions, you don't need any other answers to any other questions, right? That's sufficient for you. It's sufficient. What must I do to be saved? Jesus Christ. You must run. You must repent. You must believe in such a way that everything changes. I'm not talking about believing facts. I'm talking about believing in such a way that your life radically changes. Jesus is the most radical man who ever walked the planet. And he says what? Follow me. Yeah, of course your friends are going to disown you. Of course family members will leave you. Of course. Of course it will happen. It's not why did this happen. Jesus told us it would happen. Of course we may end up being persecuted, even in this country. Why would we expect anything less? Look what they did to him. He said, they hated me. Of course they'll hate you. Of course they will. As you know, Jesus was alive on the cross from the third hour to the ninth hour, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's a total of six hours. Matthew 27 tells us that darkness fell on the land from the sixth to the ninth hour, symbolic of the Father's curse falling upon the Son when our sins were laid upon Him. Matthew 27, 46 tells us that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John 19, 30 tells us that God shouts, it is finished. A shout of victory. It's finished. I paid for your sin. I paid for all that despicable stuff that goes on in your heart. Jesus paid for it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go to church on Easter. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. You know, I'll tip my hat. Sometimes we are nowhere as a church. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talk, talking about grace. I'm talking about the church at large. Sometimes we are nowhere. He yields up his spirit, Matthew 27, 50. <laughs> you got to love this. Uh, the, the, the veil was rent, the earth shook, the rocks were split, and many saints came out of their tombs. Beloved, these are your wages. These are your wages. John 10, 18, Jesus says, I have authority to lay my life down. And what? What else did he say? And take it up. <laughs> That's why we're here. That's why we're here. He had the authority to take it up. We don't worship a dead martyr. But the risen, ascended, reigning, returning Son of God and I'm not going to waste any time with the skeptics, you know. A lot of skeptics, they don't believe in the resurrection. Who cares? Right? You can find all kinds of nonsense out in the world. 
I'm not going to waste any time on them. The Bible, we're either Bible believers or we're not. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the bottom line. The Bible affirms that Jesus appeared no fewer than 10 times over a period of 40 days to more than 500 people. Believe it or not, ball is in your court. So I'm going to spend the last few minutes highlighting one of those appearances. Real Christians don't believe he's risen merely because of the compelling objective evidence. Yes, there's compelling objective evidence, but that's not the only reason and not even the primary reason we believe. So I'm going to highlight. I'm going to turn to John 20 verses 11 through 15. John 20 verses 11 through 15. You guys know the famous text. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to, she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around, and behold, Jesus is standing there and, and did not know that it was Jesus. You know, this is a commentary on how strong our unbelief can be, right? He said, I'm going I'm to rise. He said he was, and there he is. And she doesn't believe it. She's looking at him. She doesn't believe it. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. It's an astonishing thing. She has much love, but she has no faith. They were the first skeptics. The disciples and, and others that followed Jesus, they were the first skeptics. He had told them many times he would he would. He would rise. They just didn't believe him. But why does Mary ultimately believe that Jesus has risen? Why does she ultimately believe? What does it say in verse 16? What does your Bible say? Mary! And nobody could say her name like him. And if you're born again this morning, you've had a similar kind of experience. God has invaded your life. You're like Lazarus. You've come out of the tomb. Right? You've come out of the tomb. It's all brand new. You know, it's all brand new. You know, in John 10, 26, Jesus says this interesting thing, right? You do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, he's talking to the religious leaders. He said, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, some professed Christians don't like it when God talks like that, but this is how God talks. I can't tell you. I've been in Italy. A thousand people came through our church. It's like I can't tell you how many times people simply don't like what God says. And they never come back. They don't like it. And they don't come back. You know, John 10, one of my favorite texts. Jesus says, I call my sheep by name. Kind of the, the Mary thing there, right? They know my voice. I know my own. My own know me. And they what? What do they do? What do the sheep do? They follow the shepherd. Are you? 
If you're not following the shepherd, you're not a Christian. I don't care how many times you prayed the prayer. I don't care how many times you've been baptized. If you're not following the shepherd, you're not a Christian. Not in a biblical sense. You might be a cultural Christian, but you're not a saved man or woman. You're still outside the grace of God. If you don't know Christ this morning, I offer this Old Testament invitation. <laughs> People don't like it sometimes when I use it, but it's, it's still scripturally appropriate. Yes, it was to the Jews, but it's to all who have a hunger and thirst for God. Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. But wait, there's a game on. It's the Final Four. It's the Super Bowl. <laughs> you will search for me and find me with all your heart. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So, we believe. We believe. And one day, we will see it. Every moral creature in the universe will prostrate themselves. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, even the damned. Now, if you leave here and you never come to Christ, one day you will bow your knee to him. All the damned in hell will bow their knee to Christ. And though most of the world believes we're hopeless simpletons, thinking that we worship a dead Jewish carpenter, and many in the world using his name as a slang or curse word. We know who he is. We know what he did. We know the tomb is empty. And we know he told us in Revelation 22, 12 that he's coming back quickly. So happy Resurrection Sunday, Christian. Hallelujah. Our incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, reigning, returning God lives and there are some Sundays I just have to turn and read and I think I've done this already to you since I've been here but I sometimes I just have to turn and read Revelation 5 so I'm going to turn to Revelation 5 and I'm going to pick up in verse 2 Revelation 5 you can follow me why don't we stand as I read it Revelation Revelation 5 verse beginning in verse 2 John writes, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and the seven seals. And I, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a, a, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which, on the seven spirit, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book and the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb 
having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, which will sing for a billion eternities, saying, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain, purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth and I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne uh, and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And you can only come once a year. Beloved, I'm preaching a little bit strong to you because I love you and it's my job. If, if, you, are, if you are superficially uh, a Christian, it's my job to rebuke you on the one hand and exhort you on the other hand. Amen. And life's too short yes. for you to stand before the angry lamb unreconciled. And you'll have no one to blame but yourself. No one. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the word of God. Let's pray together.